welcome to season two of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. This week, I'm talking to the endocrinologist, emeritus professor, Dr. Robert Lustig, who argues that sugar is fueling an epidemic of chronic and metabolic disease, from diabetes and strokes to cancer and heart disease, costing hundreds of thousands of lives. He says, in a view that some have seen as controversial, that we need to see sugar not just as empty calories, but as a chronic addictive toxin. In this podcast, Rob reveals exactly what sugar does to our bodies. And he claims that while modern medicine has been highly effective in treating acute illness, it has failed in its treatment of chronic conditions, only able to treat the symptoms rather than curing the diseases. In his words, you can't fix healthcare until you fix health. You can't fix health until you fix diet. And you can't fix diet until you know what the hell is wrong. But before we get to Rob's interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast, it would be a huge help if you could leave a review on Apple and Spotify. And if you could share and recommend it to friends and family, that would also be much appreciated. You can also join the podcast mailing list and be the first to find out when a new pod is published by signing up at my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, where you can also find out more about the podcast. And you can get further details too in my Substack newsletter, liztucker.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. If in the coming weeks you feel able to support the show, even if it's just a fiver a month, that would be a great help. You can either sign up on patreon.com slash what your GP doesn't tell you or via PayPal on my website, what your GP doesn't tell you.com. Now back to the interview with Rob. Dr. Robert Lustig is a professor emeritus of paediatrics at the Division of Endocrinology at the University of California, San Francisco. He's written a number of best selling books about the dangers of sugar, refined carbohydrates, and metabolic illness. And his research and clinical practice have focused on childhood obesity and diabetes. Rob caused much controversy when he first suggested that sugar was a chronic poison. No sugar is good for you, but he argues that the sugar fructose is a particular concern. It's found in fruit, but as long as you're eating whole fruit and not fruit juice, it's not this fructose which is the problem. You'd have to eat huge quantities for that to be an issue. It's the fructose found in table sugar, which is 50% fructose and 50% glucose, and the fructose found in many ultra-processed foods, which Rob believes is the greatest hazard. Here's his interview. Hi, Rob. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Liz. Your argument, which has led to you being seen as a controversial figure in some eyes, is that sugar is not just potentially empty calories or fattening, but is actually a chronic toxin. That's right. That's the difference. Once upon a time, the food industry told us sugar was good for you. Then they said sugar was okay for you. Then they said well, sugar's not okay for you. It's just empty calories. And you're allowed to have empty calories. You know, you have discretionary calories. You can certainly spend them on sugar. So, you know, their messaging changed over the course of the late half of the uh, 20th century and 
into the early 21st century themselves as more and more data was accumulating and as the obesity and diabetes epidemics raged fully out of control. I was the first person after John Yudkin to say that sugar, in fact, was not just empty calories, but that they were toxic calories, that they actually did damage, and that eating a good diet didn't actually mitigate the negative detriments of sugar because it was a toxin. And actually, John Yudkin was a British scientist, and it's 50 years this year, in fact, that he wrote his book, Pure White and Deadly. That's right. He said this back in 1972, uh, initially in his book. He had published many papers before that challenging the primal role of sugar in our diets. But it was that book that really sort of generated the most buzz, if you will, if they had buzz back in 1972. But the fact is that back then, Yudkin only had correlation. He did not have causation. He had snapshots in time. He wasn't wrong. He just didn't have the panoply of statistical analyses that we have available to us today. And there was this sort of battle, I suppose, between, if you like, the sugar hypothesis and this idea about fats being bad. And in the 70s and 80s, it was very much the fats argument that won out. That's right. So there were two protagonists in this story. Everyone was worried about heart disease back then. They weren't worried about obesity. Obesity hadn't yet reared its ugly head. Only 5% of the country or the world was above the 95th percentile for body mass index back then. It was about heart disease. And in 1955, President Eisenhower had a heart attack and everybody sort of went, well, how did that happen? And, you know, there had been a lot of work that had been done prior to that, but that all then came to the fore. And there were two camps. And one camp was that this was about saturated fat. And that camp was uh, led by a Minnesota epidemiologist by the name of Ansel Keys. And Keys was kind of famous here in the United States already because he was the inventor of the K ration, which was 12,000 calories in a little tin box that soldiers could carry with them into battle in case they ended up being stranded behind enemy lines. He did a sabbatical in the UK in 1952 and said, why is everyone in the UK dying of heart disease. And he decided it was fish and chips. And so it was the saturated fat that the fish was fried in. He then went to Piopi, Italy, which is the home of the Mediterranean diet, and said, they don't have saturated fat. So it must be saturated fat. That's the problem. And so that's where the saturated fat hypothesis came from. John Yutkin analyzed host of other data and said, no, it's sugar that is the primary driver. And they both had correlation. They did not have causation. So neither of them had the key to the kingdom, but they battled it out. They duped it out through the 60s and early 70s. And then in 1973, Brown and Goldstein won the Nobel Prize for discovering this phenomenon called LDL low-density lipoproteins. And the reason was because they were studying these children who had extraordinarily high cholesterols and would get heart attacks at age 18. 
And it turned out these children had a defect in the LDL receptor. It's known as familial hypercholesterolemia. And so they said, well, clearly high LDL is bad. LDL is the bad guy. Then in the mid-1970s, we realized that saturated fat was the thing that raised LDL. And then finally, we had data that showed that high LDL in populations correlated with cardiovascular disease. Therefore, get rid of the dietary fat, lower your LDL, and heart disease will disappear. And that was the end of John Yudkin. And he got thrown under the bus, and they took his office away from him at University of London. He was actually forced to work out of a broom closet for a while. And ultimately, even that was taken away. And basically, he died in anogmony back in 1995, never to be heard from again. And Keyes won the battle, and we all went low fat. And I think one of the most famous key studies was the Southern Country study, which, as you say, showed correlation. But it depends which countries you choose. Exactly. Turns out Keyes' Seven Countries study, which he published in 1980, turned out it really wasn't the Seven Countries study. It was the 22 Countries study. He cherry-picked the seven countries that showed his correlation best and threw the 15 countries out that didn't match and he didn't even look at the countries that only had fat in the diet, like, for instance, the Rendili, the Tokelau, the Maasai, the Inuit. And so they have the lowest incidence of heart disease on the planet, and they have the most fat in their diet. So this is propaganda in science. There is just no doubt, looking at the data today, that Keyes basically had it in for fat, manipulated the data and falsified the data in such a way as to make it come out the way he wanted it to. So following this, dietary guidelines were drawn up across the world, which recommended that we should eat a low-fat, high-carb diet. Low-fat tastes like cardboard. No one would eat it. And so the food industry had to do something to disguise the food in such a way as to make it, quote, palatable. Well, what better to use than a compound that is addictive. Now, back then, we didn't necessarily know that it was addictive. We didn't have the uh, imaging data. We didn't have the biochemical data to demonstrate that this molecule called fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, was actually addictive. But then the food industry started adding sugar to everyone's diets, to all of their recipes. And lo and behold, guess what? When they did that, you bought more. So then they added more, and we bought more yet again. And then we all started getting fat and sick. And of course, they said that sugar was just calories. So if it's not just empty calories and, in fact, a chronic poison, what does it do to our body, Rob, when we eat it? Sugar does three things that other foodstuffs don't. The first is that molecule fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, the one that makes it delightful, if you will goes to the liver, is metabolized only by the liver, and when the liver's overwhelmed, and that's not hard to do, the liver has no choice but to take the excess and turn it into fat. So you end up with liver fat. And that liver fat will either serve as a substrate in peripherally for heart disease or obesity, or it will get caught in the liver, 
not make it out. Now you have what's known as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we now know is the driver of all of these other chronic metabolic diseases, including cancer, including dementia, including polycystic ovarian disease, heart disease, hypertension, et cetera, is the fat in the liver. And fructose drives this reaction, generating fat, generating insulin resistance, generating chronic disease, having nothing to do with obesity. Rob, you've referred to insulin resistance. Can you explain what you mean by that? So insulin is essential. You need insulin. If you don't have insulin, you have type 1 diabetes. Insulin is a hormone. It is made in the pancreas and works elsewhere. And what it does is it drives energy into cells. In particular, it drives energy into fat for storage. Insulin is the energy storage hormone. Whatever you don't burn, you store. And you store it in your fat cell. And insulin is the way it gets in. Now, other cells can still use glucose even without insulin. But your liver needs insulin and your fat cells need insulin in order to store. And so you need insulin or you will get sick. And in the most extreme cases, you will die. But the more insulin, the more weight gain. The more insulin, the more energy storage. So insulin is the bad guy in this story. The goal is keep the insulin down. And the way to keep the insulin down is don't let it go up. And we can keep our insulin levels down by not eating too much sugar or refined carbohydrate. Correct. So the point with fructose is that it's a particular problem because it can only be processed by the liver, whereas glucose can be processed by every cell in the body. That's right. So glucose is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet burns glucose for energy. Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body makes it. Okay, it will turn fat into glucose. It will turn protein into glucose, called a process called gluconeogenesis. And the reason is because you need glucose. You need glucose for energy, for the brain. You need glucose for certain proteins and membranes in order to make them run properly. So glucose is essential. It's just not essential to eat. It's essential for your body, but it's not essential to eat. Because it's so essential, your body will turn other things into glucose just so you have it no matter what. Fructose, on the other hand, this sweet molecule that we keep talking about, there is not an animal cell on the planet that requires fructose for anything. Yes, it is energy. Yes, it can be metabolized by the liver to energy in the same way the liver can metabolize alcohol for energy and ultimately is metabolized in the body, in the liver, just like alcohol. And this actually makes sense because after all, where do you get alcohol from? Fermentation of sugar. It's called wine. So it makes sense that children would get the diseases of alcohol without alcohol. So Rob, just to be clear then, what's the difference between non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and alcoholic fatty liver disease? Under the microscope, nothing. Physiologically, nothing. If you overwhelm your cell with alcohol, you get a problem. If you overwhelm your cell with fructose, you get the same problem. If I eat glucose, some of that will end up in the liver, but just a much smaller proportion. Whereas if I'm eating fructose, a much larger proportion will end up in the liver. That's correct. The second thing that fructose does is the Maillard reaction or the aging reaction or the browning reaction. 
This is why you paint barbecue sauce on your ribs before you grill them to get that nice brown color. This is why bananas brown. Okay, it is carbohydrate linking to a protein. This process occurs without enzymes. It occurs naturally. It occurs everywhere in your body. And the faster it occurs, the quicker you age and die. It is the cause of wrinkles. It is the cause of cataracts. It is the cause of atherosclerosis. It is the cause of dementia. It is the cause of virtually all systems in your body breaking down. And it occurs every single day, every single minute, every single second of your life. The question is, how fast? There are things you can do to speed it up. There are things you can do to slow it down. The slower it goes, the longer you live. Unfortunately, fructose, that sweet molecule, makes it run seven times faster than glucose. So glucose is not a walk in the park. Glucose is not, quote, good for you. Refined carbohydrate is not good for you. It still generates an insulin response, which still generates chronic disease. But compared to fructose, it's a holiday in the French Riviera. And you've also suggested that in addition to causing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and speeding up the aging process, that the third key point about fructose is that unlike glucose, it's addictive. Glucose is caro syrup, molasses. Okay, You don't see people going around chugging caro syrup or molasses. Glucose is not addictive. On the other hand, the fructose molecule, that's a whole different ballgame. And it turns out that the fructose molecule lights up the reward center in the brain. Glucose does not. The reward center can be lit up by various compounds, cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, sugar. In the extreme, every one of those is addictive. It can also be lit up by certain behaviors, shopping, gambling, internet, gaming, social media, pornography. They all light up the reward center of the brain, and in the extreme, they are all addictive. Well, fructose does the same thing for the same reasons. And so that's property that glucose and other foodstuffs do not have. When you combine these three features, the fatty liver, the aging reaction, and the addiction, you realize that fructose is a problem, not just for individuals, but for all of society. And one of the problems is, as with drugs, the more fructose you eat, the less you feel its impact. Right. This, this reward pathway that we've been talking about, it's the addiction pathway. So the problem with sugar is the more you seek, the less effect you get. And it happens at two levels. It happens due to desensitization at two places. It happens at desensitization of the tongue. So your tongue doesn't recognize the sugar anymore. So you have to add more to get an effect. And this has actually now been worked out by my colleague at University of Michigan, Dr. Monica Deuce, D-U-S, who has shown what happens on the tongue from fructose consumption. And it also happens in the brain. So the brain that reward center has dopamine receptors. Dopamine is the reward neurotransmitter. Well, the more sugar, the more dopamine. Dopamine downregulates its own receptor on purpose. And so you need more and more to get less and less. The law of diminishing returns in scientific parlance, we call that tolerance. 
And then the neurons start to die and then you have addiction. So in the extreme, sugar leads to addiction. Now, people say, I don't believe that sugar is addictive. Hey, you know what? How many people do you know who say, oh, I have a horrible sweet tooth? That's sugar addiction until proven otherwise. And it's about 20% of the UK and the US population. And you've suggested that even a mother eating fructose could have an impact on the unborn child. That's right. So we always assumed that fructose did not cross the placenta. We assumed that. That was a bad assumption. So in fact, we now know that when mom drinks a 20-ounce Coke, that baby is bathed in fructose, and it is having effects prenatally. And we know that based on animal models, which demonstrate changes in the placenta, changes in the baby's liver, and changes in the baby's brain, even before the baby is born. And those then go on to generate chronic metabolic disease in the offspring in later life. Have we seen any evidence in human babies of this chronic metabolic disorder shortly after birth? Absolutely. We have several papers now that demonstrate this. Actually, the easiest way to demonstrate this is looking at birth weight. So birth weight's been going up all over the world. In fact, over the last 25 years, birth weight's gone up by about 200 grams. Now, you might say that's good because we have better nutrition of the mother. That would be a good thing is an increase in birth weight, except when you take those babies and you stick them in a DEXA scanner, which uh, looks at body composition, turns out that 200 grams, it's all fat. So we don't have heavier babies because of muscle. We have heavier babies because of fat. We have obese newborns. And the reason is not because of improved maternal nutrition. In fact, it's because of maternal malnutrition because of their sugar consumption. So it's the reverse of what many people might understand. Exactly right. And your argument is it's not just sugar that's doing the damage, but ultra-processed food. So what is it about ultra-processed food that's so bad? <laughs> so the way I like to phrase it to people so they understand, sugar is the payload. Ultra-processed food is the vehicle. Okay? So the nuclear bomb is what does the damage. Okay, but the missile is how it gets there. <laughs> so you need both, <laughs> okay. right? All right? Well, you and don't need is, both, effective, but I, I get your point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to do the damage, you need both. <laughs> you, yeah, not, no one needs either, yeah. right? But you know, it's that concept. The ultra-processed food is sugar-laden. There are many things wrong with ultra-processed food, but two big ones, okay? And everything else is sort of secondary after that. Ultra-processed food is high sugar, low fiber. High sugar for palatability, sales, low fiber for shelf life, freezing, because you can't freeze fiber. I'll prove it to you. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight, take it out the next morning, let it thaw, try to eat it, see what you get. You get a mush. Right. You get mush. Why do you get mush? Because the ice crystals macerate the cell wall let all the water rush in. Hey, food industry knows that. So what do they do? Squeeze it and freeze it. Frozen concentrated orange juice. So the question is, is frozen concentrated orange juice the same thing as an orange? And the answer is no, it is not. And the reason is because they have strained away the fiber. 
fiber is actually the reason to eat the fruit in the first place. And the reason is because fiber is not for you. Fiber is for your bacteria. You have 10 trillion cells in your body. You have 100 trillion bacteria in your intestine. Your bacteria outnumber you 10 to 1. They have to eat something. The question is, what do they eat? Well, they eat the fiber. That's their food. So the fruit, the orange, has fructose for us, yes, but it has the fiber. And what the fiber does is it actually inhibits the absorption of that fructose in our intestine so that we don't absorb it. It stays in the intestine. The fiber forms a gel on the inside of the duodenum, the first part of the intestine, preventing early absorption, thus protecting the liver and reducing the glucose response and reducing the fructose response and reducing the insulin response, all necessary. And then because the sugar didn't get absorbed early, it goes further down the intestine and that's where the bacteria are, to the jejunum, where the bacteria will chew it up for its own purposes. So if you ate that fruit with its inherent fiber, you didn't even get the fructose. It was for your bacteria. You fed your gut. You protected your liver and you fed your gut. And those are the two precepts for being healthy. So fruit in its natural state is healthy. Fruit juice in its unnatural state, because the fiber has been stripped away, is not. And the food industry, they want to sell juice. And why do they want to sell juice? Because fruit goes rancid. Fruit basically decompensates over time. Whereas, hey, fruit juice, put it in a refrigerator, put it in a freezer, decreased depreciation, increased profits. And they'll tell you they're the same, but they're not. Food should do two things then, basically. Protect the liver and feed the gut. Exactly. Protect the liver from sugar load, protect the liver from toxins that affect the mitochondria, such as cadmium, glyphosate, branched-chain amino acids, alcohol, all of which will cause the liver to be dysfunctional. And if the liver is dysfunctional, you end up insulin-resistant. And then feed the gut. Feed the gut fiber, because fiber is the food for the bacteria. And if you don't feed your bacteria, your bacteria will feed on you. Bacteria, they want to stay alive. They will strip the mucin layer, polysaccharide layer that sits on top of the intestinal epithelial cells, acting as a secondary barrier, like a little piece of cellophane sitting on top of the intestine. And they will chew it up for their own purposes, denuding those bacteria. And now those bacteria have access to your circulation and you can end up with leaky gut, you can end up with inflammation, you can basically all the, you know, what the SHIT in your intestine will end up in your bloodstream, will end up at your liver, and you will now have liver inflammation, and that will cause insulin resistance, and that will cause chronic metabolic disease as well. So keeping that barrier in your intestine functional is absolutely essential. And what you have to do is you have to feed the bacteria in order to keep them happy so that they don't then turn on you. So that fiber is an essential nutrient. It's just not an essential nutrient that you absorb. So if we're eating too much sugar, which of course will include many ultra-processed foods, that has led to this explosion in metabolic disease. Can you explain what you mean by metabolic disease? 
Well, basically, metabolic disease means diseases of the mitochondria. So mitochondria are little energy burning factories inside each of your cells. That's what they do. That's their job. And then we utilize the energy they burn to power the different things that our cells need to do. If your mitochondria are working right, you will be 110 playing tennis. If your mitochondria are working wrong, you will be 40 years old in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke and everything in between. So keeping your mitochondria fit is job one. And the problem is that we are exposed on a meal-to-meal basis with a direct primary mitochondrial toxin, and that toxin is called sugar. So these metabolic illnesses, that will include autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, dementia, hypertension, gout, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, heart disease, of type 2 diabetes, of course. These are all chronic metabolic diseases due to dysfunctional mitochondria. And what you'll notice is that every one of the diseases that I just listed, they have treatments, but they have no cures. There are medicines for them to reduce symptoms, but there's no way to get rid of any of them. Well, medicine's not been good at treating chronic illness at all. That's right. We don't know how to treat chronic illness. We can deal with acute illnesses, and that is what modern medicine is good at. Chronic illnesses, modern medicine has basically abdicated. What we've done is we've treated the symptoms. Oh, yeah. So, for instance, statins for high LDL. The LDL is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Oral hypoglycemics for high blood glucose. Turns out high blood glucose is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. Uh, bisphosphonates for uh, osteoporosis. Turns out the osteoporosis is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem. In each of these cases, what you're looking at is the manifestation of the problem rather than the problem itself. It's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache. Might help the headache, won't do a damn thing for the brain tumor. And that's the way we've been treating chronic illness throughout the last 50 years, is that we can palliate we can basically mitigate symptoms and somehow that's good enough and expect people to go along with that. And of course, this is why no one's getting better. Everyone's getting worse and healthcare costs have just gone through the friggin' roof is because now everyone has some form of metabolic disease. And the cost of treating the symptoms of chronic disease is just spiraling completely out of control. Absolutely. Chronic metabolic disease is forever. And these diabetes drugs are, you know, ba- basically breaking the, the medical bank. They're breaking healthcare. So we have to prevent these diseases because we can't cure them. They're not curable because you can't get medicine to the mitochondria. They don't go. They can't get there. So you can't fix your mitochondria with a medicine. But turns out, You can fix your mitochondria with food because that's what your mitochondria are made of. It's made of the components of food. That's how you make them. So if you supply your cells with things that make your mitochondria fresh and strong and productive, you'll be that 110-year-old playing tennis. So what should people be doing then to make their mitochondria effective? (laughs) 
two words, real food, real food. Now, why is real food okay? Well, it's okay because two things, low sugar, high fiber. Okay, it's the high sugar, low fiber of processed food that drives mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, the sugar is a primary mitochondrial toxin. It inhibits three separate enzymes in the mitochondria that cause them to be dysfunctional. When these are inhibited, your mitochondria don't work well, in which case now your cell can't burn the energy and turns it into fat instead. So that's the, the relationship. The micronutrients that improve mitochondrial function, for instance, B1, B2, B6, uh, folate, they travel with the fiber fraction, not with the juice fraction, for instance, in an orange. The only one that travels with the juice is vitamin C. The others travel with the fiber. In whole grains, people talk about whole grain bread being good for you. Well, that's true if it's truly whole grain. The problem is there's no definition for whole grain. So whole grain bread could be just brown colored, or it could be that they are actually whole grains and they are very different. I'm a keen baker, so I always make my own bread. But you see on the wholemeal flour, the level of fiber content. Would that give you a clue? No, it's already a mistake. You just said the word flour, because what is flour? Flour means you've actually had to macerate and break up and pulverize that whole grain in order to make flour. So if it says flour, you're done. <laughs> it's not. This is depressing, Rob. Period. It's over. I think I eat reasonably healthily, and I don't eat ultra-processed food. So how can I make healthy bread? So have you ever seen in the health food store, if you go into Weight Rose or Marks & Spencer, I guarantee you, you'll find it. German fitness bread. It is half the size of a normal loaf of bread. It looks like a brick. It's heavy. It's dense. It makes a lousy sandwich. And the reason it makes a lousy sandwich is because the whole grains are still whole, which means the gluten in the starch, which is what makes the bread spongy, which makes what makes it a good sandwich and holds together, hasn't been released from the kernel. So if you're going to bake from scratch, even if you go to top-grade organic flour, those are your only options. Indeed. So there are ways to do it, but the uh, baking industry is not helping you with that. But the bottom line is it's what they used to bake with, but they don't bake with now. But you can do it. And if you do it, that means that the germ is still intact, the wheat germ, which is inside the kernel. And if so, then that's where the nucleic acids, that's where the polyphenols, that's where the flavonoids, that's where the biotin, that's where all of the good things that are in whole grains, the things that basically provide you with mitochondrial support. So if I make bread with standard wholemeal organic flour, am I doing myself any favors as opposed to buying it? No, it's not making much difference. And that would also apply even if I make cakes rather than buying them. That's not a huge benefit. I mean, th there's no question that baking it yourself is better than not. Uh, my wife is a baker. She's half Norwegian. I can't stop her. It's you know therapy for her. What she's been able to figure out is that she can take any recipe for any cake or any cookie. And what she does is she cuts the sugar in the recipe by one third. 
and it will actually come out better because you'll be able to taste the chocolate. You'll be able to taste the oatmeal. You'll be able to taste the raisins. It will actually taste better than if you add all the sugar that the recipe calls for. And it will be a much healthier cookie as well. One of the things I notice when I go to the States is how everything tastes that much sweeter, that even supermarket bread is sweeter than it is in the UK. Exactly right. And the reason is because they learned when they add it, you buy more and you also gain more weight. And you've suggested that even artificial sweeteners may drive metabolic illness. So that's not a good solution either. That's right. So it's about insulin. Insulin is the bad guy. People think, well, artificial sweetener, no fructose, no calories. Yeah, but it still drives insulin. You put an artificial sweetener on the tongue. Message goes tongue to brain. Sugar's coming, even though it's not sugar. Message goes brain to pancreas. Sure is coming, release the insulin, and you get an insulin response anyway. And it turns out that insulin response sometimes can actually be bigger than that it is than it is for sugar. So you're not actually doing yourself any favors. And we now know that several of the diet sweeteners actually alter that gut microbiome, alter those bacteria, and lead to that leaky gut and insulin resistance and inflammation that we just talked about. So even though no calories, even though no fructose doesn't make it good. And I think some people will be surprised that you can have metabolic syndrome, even if you're not overweight. I think you suggest, I think it was 40% of normal weight people have metabolic syndrome. That's right. People think that these metabolic diseases are because of obesity. No. The obesity is because of these metabolic diseases. So the way to think of it is, it is true that 80% of obese people have metabolic diseases. That is true. But that means 20% of obese people don't. They're perfectly healthy. They will live a completely normal life, die at a completely normal age, not cost the taxpayer a dime. They're just fat. They probably outlive me. They're fine. 20%. Conversely, 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease also. Now, they get it at a lower weight. So what we've learned is that the fat you can see, i.e. obesity, is not the fat that's causing the disease. The fat that's causing the disease is the fat in the liver or the fat in the belly, visceral fat, liver fat. Those are not necessarily what you measure when you stand on the scale. So it turns out plenty of normal weight people have metabolic syndrome. A lot of them, not all, but a lot of them are from South Asia. So the Chinese, the Indians, they will get metabolic syndrome at a lower BMI, at a lower body weight. But it's the same metabolic syndrome, and it's for the same reasons, because it's because of the visceral and the liver fat. But we so, don't really know why some people have a greater predisposition. Right. That we're still trying to figure that out. We have some ideas, but we don't know yet. One of the measures that is said to be better than BMI is having your waist at least half your height. So waist circumference is a measure of visceral and liver fat. Everyone should know their waist circumference. And if your waist circumference is over 40 inches for men and over 35 inches for women, and I can't do the centimeters in my head right now, 40 inches is about 100 centimeters. 
35 is about 90, I think. The chances that you will have liver and visceral fat are very high. That's a way to figure it out. If you want to know if you have liver fat, there's a lab test that your doctor does that will tell you. It is called an ALT, alanine aminotransferase. It is a standard lab test on virtually all chem panels. So if you go to your doctor, if you go and you ask him for your labs, don't let him tell you they're normal. Normal means nothing. Take the word normal out of your lexicon when it comes to medicine. Normal for who? Normal for what age, normal for what race, normal for what size. Take the word normal and just know if you hear it, your doctor's an idiot. You suggest a range of tests that people could go in and get done by their doctor. So find out your numbers and your ALT should be 25 or below. Unfortunately, on the lab slip, the ALT upper limit of normal says 40. Now, why do I say 25? When the lab itself says 40, and the answer is because everyone now has fatty liver disease. 45% of America has fatty liver disease. The entire curve has shifted to the right. Because how do you figure out what's normal? Well, you take 10,000 measurements and you do a standard deviation curve. And you do, right, the average and two standard deviations and you draw the line. Okay, and the line is now 40. That's because everybody went from over here on the left to over here on the right, because now everyone's got fatty liver disease. That doesn't make it normal. That just makes it average. Doesn't make it normal. (laughs) That's why the word normal means nothing. (laughs) When I read, Rob, your suggestion, all these tests that one could go in and ask one's GP, I can absolutely see the value of that. But to be honest, in a lot of the UK, that would be quite difficult to do, I think. Well, yeah. And that's part of the problem of the NHS. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to tell you I am a fan of the NHS. I'm also not a detractor. I think that we in America don't have an NHS. And it's one of the reasons we have such horrible health care. We have worse health care than you. Okay, believe it or not. Uh, You spend a lot more than we do, of course. And we, uh, we spend a whole lot more and get a whole lot less. But the fact of the matter is that the NHS is all protocolized. And that means that people don't think. And that's what the problem is. So you can get a good NHS doctor. You can get a bad NHS doctor. Same as in America. The point is that you will much more likely have to get a doctor who protocolizes in order to stay on the NHS. And so I, if the NHS ever wants my opinion, I'll be very happy to share it with them. Our National Institute of Clinical Excellence, NICE, lays down guidelines for the treatment of various illnesses. Well, NICE is not very nice. Which, for good practice, doctors have to follow. So you argue that there's eight subcellular pathologies which are contributing to these chronic illnesses. That's right. Now, none of these pathologies have an ICD-11 code. None of them are reimbursed. None of them have a treatment They have prevention, but they don't have treatment. And so none of them are billable. So no doctor ever talks to their patient about them because what would they say about it anyway? So I'm just going to recite the eight subcellular pathologies. So here they are, one through eight. Glycation, oxidative stress, mitochondrial dysfunction, insulin resistance, membrane instability, inflammation, methylation, and autophagy. Now, These are all standard processes that go on in your cells all the time. The question is, how fast? 
That's the question. There are things that make those things go faster. There are things that make those things go slower. If they go faster, you're dead 15 years early. If they go slower, you're dead 15 years later. How do you fix it? How do you change it? Answer, food, real food. That's how you change it. Exercise two, exercise will affect four of those eight, but not all eight. So you cannot outrun a bad diet because you'll only have fixed four of the eight. So no matter what, diet matters. No matter what, you got to eat right. What does eating right mean? It means eat real food, eat food that came out of the ground or animals that ate the food that came out of the ground. If it went to a lab or a plant, then it's a problem. If they took the fiber away, that's a problem. If they put sugar in, that's a problem. But even when eating real food, there could be real differences. For example, wild fish has benefits that farmed fish doesn't. That's right. And eating grass-fed beef is not the same as eating beef fed on grain. Exactly right. So farmed fish eat corn. Wild fish eat algae. Algae make omega-3s. Omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. Single best thing you can put in your body. Farmed fish eat corn. Corn's filled with omega-6s corn oil, soybean oil. Those are pro-inflammatory. Those drive chronic metabolic diseases. Those drive inflammatory conditions. So even though you're eating fish, what kind of fish are you eating? As an example, how about meat? So here in America, we eat 23 kilos of meat a year. New Zealand and Argentina eat 44 kilos of meat a year. So you would think that Argentina and New Zealand would have higher rates of heart disease. No, they have lower rates of heart disease. They're eating twice the meat we are, and they have lower rates of heart disease. Why is that? And the answer is because their meat is not our meat, because their meat is, number one, pasture-raised, and they didn't have to give antibiotics to the animals, and their animals ate grass. And grass is not the same thing as corn. So our animals have much more branch chain amino acids because of corn. Their animals have much less. Well, those branch chain amino acids turn out to get turned into fat in the liver too. So it's our meat, not meat. And so, you know, when you look at studies, you have to look at not just what the study said, but where they were done. You also have to look at who sponsored the study to figure out what's going on, to basically be able to parse out what the difficulties in current nutrition science are so that you are not led astray, so that you don't suffer from the same propaganda of Ansel Keys. It's a problem, isn't it? Because big food has big budgets and independent research is hard to fund. You know, who do you trust? Who do you believe? How do you figure out what's the truth? And the answer is you have to be smart, but you not only have to be smart, you actually have to look. You actually have to do use some brain power to figure it out. Piece together the data in such a way as to explain what happened, why it happened, and how each of us can actually extricate ourselves from this propagandist disaster, uh, medical disaster that has befallen us over the last 50 years. So interesting, Rob, what do you eat? <laughs> Real food. So in the morning, I'll eat cheese or eggs. Sometimes I will have a 
piece of bacon or sausage with that sometimes. Salads, but always with homemade dressing because the store-bought dressing is a disaster. And in the evening, preferably uh, farm-raised, either meat, chicken, or fish, always with a vegetable. And the vegetable should be, you know, half the plate and no dessert. Piece of fruit for dessert. So in terms of added sugar, you avoid that? As much as possible. Now, that doesn't mean I'm against dessert. I'm for dessert. I'm not for dessert for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. I'm not for eating the sugar they put in the food. I'm for eating the sugar I put in the food. So, Rob, what needs to change? In my opinion, and this is just opinion, we will not solve this problem until we undo food subsidies. To me, food subsidies are number one. If I had a magic wand, people ask me, if you could like fix anything, you know, what would you fix? I would get rid of all food subsidies because they distort the market. And it is because of the food subsidies that we've made processed food cheap. Now, people say, well, if you did that, then the price of food would go sky high. Turns out, no, it wouldn't. The Genie Foundation at UC Berkeley did this exercise many years ago. They asked the question, they modeled the question, what would the price of food look like if we got rid of all food subsidies from all countries? Okay, so you have to do it en masse all the way around the world, all right? Not just one country, but everywhere. Turns out the price of food wouldn't change, except for two items, corn and sugar which is what we want to go up so that we would consume less of it. But Rob, in the UK, for example, I tend to eat organic, I tend to eat grass-fed, eat wild fish. That's all much more expensive. It is today. But if we actually got rid of food subsidies, it wouldn't be because there wouldn't be the impetus to then have to raise the price on real food in order to subsidize the processed food. Remember that whenever you institute a subsidy, that's really a tax on everything else. It means that the price of everything else is going up. So to me, that's where it starts because then the food industry can be rewarded for doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Right now, the subsidy is the reward for doing the wrong thing. But Rob, that's not only a huge business change. It also means a major cultural shift to persuade people that they actually need to start cooking from scratch. Well, we don't have to necessarily go that far. The fact is that there are a lot of companies that are being enterprising now in terms of being able to make processed food healthy. I am working with one offshore in uh, the Middle East right now. We've taken their entire 180-item portfolio and analyzed it completely and re-engineered their items. And now of those 180 items, 18, 10% of their items are now completely re-engineered and on the shelves. So it can be done. Now, in order to do that, we basically have to have all companies, all processed food companies, CPG companies, playing by the same rules at the same time so that there's no competitive advantage, no selective advantage. Now, can that be done? Hey, you did it in the UK. You did it with salt back in the early 2000s. The Blair government sat down with Tesco and Waitrose and M&S and all your other manufacturers and basically said, look, the incidence of stroke and hypertension in the UK due to salt consumption was sky high. And this was a private meeting. And they said, 
we're going to play referee. UK government is going to play referee and every company is going to play by the same rules. And you're all going to reduce the uh, availability of salt in your recipes by 10% per year for three years in a row to get down by 30%. And guess what? When they did that, uh, the prevalence of hypertension and stroke in the UK went down by 40% and no one noticed. And the reason was because number one, they did it together. And number two, they didn't advertise it. And number three, the UK government played referee. Can be done. Well, Rob, thank you so much indeed for sparing time to chat. I'm going to go off and eat my wild fish now. <laughs> and make sure you put a very nice lemon vinaigrette on it with maybe a little bit of ginger. Will do. Thanks so much, Rob. Bye. My pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of What Your GP Doesn't Tell You. A reminder, you can sign up for the podcast mailing list at whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com, get further details on my Substack newsletter, and follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker. In the next episode, 50 years on from when one of the worst travesties and abuses of medical ethics ever was exposed, I talk to the great-great-granddaughter, Dr. Kimberly Carr, of a man who took part in the research known as the Tuskegee Study a study which left hundreds of black men untreated from syphilis, even though an effective drug was available. The result was more than 100 men died, 40 of their wives were infected with syphilis, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis, a tragedy which was completely preventable. And we go on to discuss the impact of this study to the present day on racial disparities in health and healthcare. So do please join me then. Many thanks for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>